Hey there, deviants. Are you ready for another true crime fix? Well, you're in the right place because we've got a new episode of Dark and Devious. Yes, thank you for that introduction, Chris. It is a, another week, another new episode of Dark and Devious. And I must say, Chris, you sounded very soothing, like almost <laughs> ASMR with that nice little calm intro you had. Oh my gosh, I could I could be a like night nighttime DJ, you know. <laughs> but oh my gosh, I keep knocking my microphone over. Even before we started recording, I was like knocking over. I need to get it just right. There we go. That's, That's okay. Fine. It sounded fine. I did not hear anything fall. So okay, good. <laughs> we're good to go. Um, but yes, you are in the right place, listeners. If you are ready for some more true crime, there's it never stops. <laughs> no, unfortunately, it does not. I mean. <laughs> As a true crime podcast hosts, I mean, that means we're never going to run out of things to talk about to keep the content coming. But unfortunately, that also means that bad things are happening out there. Right. Uh, do you want to lead with your big, like, personal true crime news? Um. Yeah. So <laughs> this past Friday, for those of listeners either new or people who have forgotten I work for Austin Community College and um, I'm a recruiting specialist. So I go out to high schools and I talk with prospective students, help them get enrolled, help them sign up for courses, blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Real important stuff. Yada, yada. I'm only helping the future generation. Right. So oh, my gosh. Give, are... give him a medal right now. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I was at a high school this past Friday and the counselor at the high school knows that I serve another high school, which I don't really want to name names so much. Yeah, it's it's best to keep this like somewhat vague. I think. Yeah. Um. So the other high school that I serve, this counselor asked me, hey, did you hear what happened over at insert high school name? <laughs> and I was like, no, do tell. Um. I thought she was going to like spill some tea on some like counselor gossip or maybe oh my gosh was like, did you know that jenny and jake are now dating i mean i hear gossip all the time so i was like "Ooh, <laughs> what's going on but no she informed me that the day before at the other high school one of my students was arrested on campus and not arrested on like a hit and run or an assault charge this student was arrested for murder. Which is just insane. I mean, a high schooler arrested for murder and also, like, a student that you, like, is this a student that you had, like, personally met or? So possibly. I okay. I honestly see hundreds of students within a single month. So it is possible I had come across this 
person um, or maybe not one of my like more personal visits, but sometimes I go and do visits where it's just a big presentation, you know, with like 50 mm-hmm. kids in the room. It's possible. I don't know. But this student was arrested and they are not the one that committed the act, but this is the fourth arrest in this case. It just happened wow. to take place on campus during the school day. Oh my gosh, which is just nuts. I mean, here in Minnesota, there uh, there was actually just a, in fact, they just recently had the funeral for the kid, like a 15-year-old who got like jumped at like at school and they got stabbed and they died from their injuries and then even crazier there was like a funeral at like there was like a ceremony thing at a community center and then there was like gunfire at the the community center like it's just what is happening what is happening like high schoolers should not have to be worrying about that they should be worrying about like acing their next exam not whether someone's going to like jump them right or shoot them like school is stressful enough as it is Uh uh-huh um so not having to worry about things like that uh with this case that's ongoing um two girls one of which was the one arrested this past week lured um a male student to kind of like a secluded area and their original intent was to rob him. Um, And they had gotten two other boys involved because they, I don't know what type of circle they're running in, but they're like, okay, we probably can't overpower this, this male student who's bigger than us. Mm -hmm. So they got two other male students involved in the plan. And one, like that's four people already. Like how much are you going to rob him? Is he a millionaire? No, he's a high school student. Right. I, that's one thing where it's like, what could a high school student possibly have on them that would be valuable enough to like concoct a plot? Yeah, I can understand if it's just like a singular person wanting wanting to like lift Stephanie's diamond ring during gym class. Like I get that. But to involve four people to lure someone out to a secluded location in a robbery attempt. And then unfortunately, this robbery attempt, as we know, ended in murder. Um, Where does that come from? How do these kids think this up? Mm -hmm. Um, So the initial arrest occurred back in October of 2022. um, And it was of the two male students. And just through um, like tips from other students or faculty and then also just through um what's that word i'm trying to um where a person on trial will give information what's that word i'm trying to think of oh like informant informant or... yeah okay um so like we'll give you like a little bit less sentence if you tell us more details type of thing uh-huh, like um, let's make sure we get everybody who's involved yeah so that's what led to Uh, The two female students being arrested, which, again, one happened just last week on campus, which I cannot imagine the students that day that were present. Can you imagine, like, all the texting, all the... Right. You know the rumor mill was was, uh, in full force that day. Like, Mm -hmm. that's... 
that's crazy and to be adjacent to such a a strange and terrible act is just man it's just bizarre it is um so although we can like gossip and chat about this at the end of the day a 17 year old did lose his life Mm -hmm. um, which is sad enough but then also these young kids who have yet to finish high school got caught up in something and are now gonna lose their future because of their very poor choices and i'm not to i'm not really like giving them an escape route but i'm also not blaming them either because they are kids yeah uh i mean your brain is still developing uh you've you've got a lot of it's a lot harder i feel like to resist peer pressure when you're a student right but, and but and also yeah, like it's one of those things where like you don't want to give them like you don't want to give them too much a benefit of the doubt but like you want to be at least reasonable and impartial yeah. until everything sorts itself out yeah so like i think all involved did not plan on this student being murdered mm-hmm. so that's where i do give them a little bit of leniency but at the same time their motives were also not good yeah so also it's it's texas uh i mean texas does not exactly have a track record of going easy on offenders no we do not um, i mean it's, i think we're uh, a little easier than florida which again no offense florida i'm sorry we called you out last episode <laughs> too i am so sorry uh, <laughs> uh i i feel like the like the the reputation is that Texas is pretty gung ho with the death penalty. Yeah, like, I, yeah. I think, yeah. I think that's where Texas is probably like the harshest uh, when it comes to the criminal justice system. I think I'll, I think many other states have kind of like either like within their state codes that they don't do the death penalty like their max sentence is like life in prison um like i think in minnesota there there is not the death penalty here but if you commit a federal crime or like i think we learned that one in the drew shadeen episode where you could still be sentenced to death if you create if like your crime took place over like over state lines over state lines yeah yeah which is where like the federal mm-hmm. like thing gets in, involved. But yeah. anyway. But anyways, yeah, that's my exciting news of the week. That um, is that is way more exciting than my news of the week, which is my home renovation. <laughs> I know we were talking earlier. You love uh, like home demolition, like home makeover stuff I do. right i really do love it um <laughs> i mean i've redone flooring in my life when my brother um moved in to a new home it was a very very old farmhouse like i was in there with sledgehammers tearing up walls like busting out <laughs> lights like i honestly love it i think what i need is one of those rec rooms that oh I've yeah seen online where you just go in and they have like tvs and cinder blocks and like radios and they give you a sledgehammer and you just go to town it's like a mm-hmm. it's like a new form of therapy do i need this 
Uh, you know what? I, it's funny. I, I had one of my coworkers tell me that they did one of those. It was like somebody's birthday and they rented one of those rec, rec rooms or whatever. And sounded like it was very therapeutic. Mm-hmm. But Makes it think of when I was in high school during like homecoming, they had like a junky car and like it would be like the other team's name would be spray painted on or whatever. And everyone would just take turns smashing it. Yeah, that's, I that's definitely loved that. Unfortunately, I was not into school spirit. Um <laughs> But um, so as people like me, we find this type of work therapeutic. It sounds like it has not been so great for you. Um, it's it's been quite a a tricky subject for me. So what we're doing is we're we're replacing the floor in in my kitchen, and um, and it, it's a fairly old house. I mean, I think the house was built in maybe like the forties. And uh, so it has had a number of different kitchen floors. So, the, I mean, the house, um, it, actually, it still belongs to my grandmother. Um, and so I, on the phone, I, I had asked her about what the floor looked like. Cause we were like peeling up layers of past <laughs> floors. Yeah. And, you know, I saw like remnants of the, the old floors that I remember from when I was a kid Um and that was kind of like a almost like a brick pattern but um i remember it looking kind of green but my grandma insists that when she when they put it in it was blue so i think it had just like changed color with time because yeah. i think they put in that floor in like 1975 or something and she told me that when she moved in there was carpet in the kitchen um when so my my childhood home was built in the 60s mm-hmm. uh, we had a when we first moved in i was like three so i barely remember this the kitchen had carpet but then all the way up to my teen years both the bathrooms were carpeted that was the other thing she said what that there was some carpet in the bathroom and she was like yeah first thing we did was we tore that up and i mean that's got just rid disgusting of it. And like I can't imagine that would stay clean for very long. And I remember the bathroom carpet that we had, they were both a very, very deep, deep shade of blue. So it's like oh, I can they intentionally it. made it dark so you couldn't see all the nastiness that was going mm. on. Oof. Um, but what's very fun is that I I've found what I believe it to be the one of the earliest floors, which was uh, it looks like it was meant to be meant to look like, you know, stone like, but like a 1950s uh, laminate version of it. Mm-hmm. So it's like brown floors with flecks of orange and green in it. Um, definitely a choice. Um, I'm sure it would look great with the proper, uh, accompaniment, but browns are not in my future for this kitchen. We've already painted the walls and we've got a much more neutral flooring that's going to go in next. But, um, the old flooring has been very stubborn and has been a big pain to get up. So it's it's been a lot of effort. We spent a good 
afternoon trying to get it all up and did not succeed <laughs> and uh but we've made some progress i know um my partner and i have have continued on the good fight getting some of that uh those remnants up so we're making progress yeah um i i've i've done a few floors in my day and i do remember the ones that are layered where people didn't bother taking them they are a pain in the ass i want to say like when when they put in flooring in the 70s it's like this is gonna be here until doomsday like the the house could be gone but that floor will still be there Mm -hmm, right (laughs) yeah it's tough stuff yeah i mean it held up great for a very long time but now i need it to go away fair (laughs) well i wish you luck on getting that finished um i am a little jealous that i'm not there getting to do it myself um but someday it is kind of satisfying yeah, it is kind of satisfying when you like got a chisel and you're like and you get a good chunk. It's like when you're uh it's like when you're picking a scab off. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um I totally get that. I um No. Maybe I shouldn't say what I was going to say about how satisfying it can be to pick away certain things. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Um but yes. Uh well, um again good luck with that and i can't wait to see it when i visit next and the new floors down yes it's it's gonna come together really quick i think it's not a huge kitchen so once once the floor is a blank slate again i think it's gonna go quick i think that's kind of the major news i had um and a teaser for next episode, I just finished reading this wonderful true crime book for my next source. So um, get ready for another exciting, uh, really interesting episode for me next week. Uh, I know Patrick has got got uh, another week here in a row um to allow me a little extra time which i definitely appreciate (laughs) so i just wanted to get people excited for the next episode too because this book i was very enjoyable to read and uh and i think everyone's gonna enjoy hearing me talk about it (laughs) well i'm certainly uh anticipating that um i never know what you're gonna bring this week I was all ready to go with my story. It is a story that I have heard for a couple of years now. It's relatively recent. Um, Okay. And I was super excited to tell it. But then I got smacked in the face with a story I had never heard of. And so even though I was prepared yesterday, I spent today looking up this new story that I just had to talk about. I could not wait to talk about it. Um, So it's new to me. I'm sure it will be new to you. And I hope it is new to our listeners. Oh my gosh. Okay. You are selling me on this. I am very excited. Let's get to it. Okay, Chris. So we are going to start off this case with kind of a little bit of a teaser before I go back to the beginning. Oh, okay. A little little flashback moment. 
kind of a flashback flash forward wow this is like i feel like i already feel like i'm watching an episode of 24 <laughs> oh i haven't seen that show in so long oh my I, did i just that is that a dated reference now very much so oh gosh gen z forgive us yeah <laughs> <laughs> They're like, oh, okay but we will start in chadwick missouri chadwick is located in the hills of the ozarks which I've been to Lake of Ozarks, and it's actually a really pristine place for people that love nature. The area has green rolling hills, limestone caves, and many springs. Many homes and schools are right in the heart of the Mark Twain National Forest. In the early 1980s, Alice and Gerald Uden moved into the area of uh, moved into the area from Wyoming. Alice was originally from Missouri, and she was happy about the new start there. She had not been too lucky in love. Gerald was her fourth husband. Never too late to find one. (laughs) Exactly. You know, you got to try out a few models before the right one clicks. (laughs) Sometimes, sometimes that has to happen. Alice did have five children from her previous marriage, marriages, and the youngest was a four-year-old girl named Erica who lived with Gerald and Alice. Erica had everything she could ever wish for. Alice and Gerald had started a trucking company shortly after moving to Chadwick, Missouri. Gerald was a hands-on type of person and drove the trucks, long distance himself. The company was successful, and they were in a position to send Erica to private school. Okay, everything sounds great so far. Mm-hmm. Alice was a devout Catholic and loved going to church. She spent lots of time in prayer and penance and tried to convince Gerald to go to Catholic church with her. He was a bit hesitant to attend, but he would do anything to keep his wife happy. And after a couple of years of moving to Missouri, he too was a regular faith at the local congregation. Hey, I mean, happy wife, happy life is what mm-hmm, I say. Exactly. Uh, it's, you know, makes her happy. Sometimes just got to go along for the ride. Mm-hmm. Agreed. It's all about compromise. Yeah, right. Yes. Although Gerald was not Erica's biological father, he treated her like she was his own daughter. He was dedicated to giving her a good life. Erica always felt that her parents' relationship was rock solid, and they always supported each other and stood together no matter what. She remembers there being a lot of laughter in their home. Flash forward to 2013. Alice and Gerald were now proud grandparents. Alice was 74 and Gerald 71, but they weren't ready to retire yet. Gerald was still driving his trucks on long-haul missions, and it is quoted that they were well-liked by their neighbors. However, this was all a facade. Because in a very short time, very dark secrets that were kept under wraps for more than 30 years would start to arise and completely change this family forever. Oh dang, that's a great setup. Um, I here I'm thinking like Gerald, why don't you just 
retire, like live out the rest of your days in relaxation. Like sounds like you guys did a great job with this business. Time to just enjoy yourself. But now I'm like, what did they do? Were these two like grandparents sinister in some way? I'm like, does it have to do with the, the children? My I'm my mind is racing at the possibilities. Well, um, as was mine when I first heard this, I was like, oh, these are lovely people. Um, but not everything is what it seems surface level. So going back to July 1974, we find Alice working as a nurse in the psychiatric unit at a Veterans Administration Hospital in Sheridan, Wyoming. Remember, they moved to Missouri from Wyoming. Mm -hmm. Alice was in her early 30s and had been that time married twice before. Also, at that time, she only had four of her five children and all four with her first husband, but they amicably separated. Her ex-husband and all the children did live in Illinois at that time. Her second husband, Donald, had died just the year before, and that is who she had Erica with. Soon after starting her new job um, as that nurse, Alice met a 25-year-old man called Ron Holtz. Ron had been a helicopter door gunman in Vietnam and was honestly discharged in 1970 due to various psychiatric problems. Which, um, trigger warning for anyone who may have served, um, Ron did have PTSD, and before he was discharged, he often threatened to commit suicide and needed additional mental health support. Mm -hmm. uh, that a whole conflict with like was just really, really rough on everybody who served and a lot of young men and and women, I'm sure, but a lot of young people who served came back changed forever. And some people were never the same. Right. Due to the draft, most uh, men who did serve in the Vietnam War from the U.S. side, most of them did not want to. They were just drafted to do it. And they saw horrific things. Mm -hmm. I can't um, imagine just being like a normal, everyday teenager. And then it's like you turn 18 and then you are being sent off to war when you are not mentally prepared for that. Like, I guess I could understand if you were like, I signed up for the armed forces. Like I'm ready to get in and get my hands dirty and do what needs to be done. But when it's like, when you're being forced into it, man, I can't imagine the mental repercussions for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I can't. Even people that sign up willingly mm -hmm. often don't fully comprehend what just they're getting themselves into. But anyways, when Alice met Ron, um, he was actually a patient in a psychiatric ward where she worked, and she was a nurse assigned to take care of him. Ron liked Alice and made his feelings clear from the start. After a just couple months long, the two or a couple months long relationship, the two married on September 17th, 1974. 
Wow. And I mean, did it say that he was like what um, branch he served in? Was he in like the army? He wasn't. Or... Um, it, I found Marines. that he was a gunman from a helicopter. Okay. I um, mean, so it could be Air Force, could be Army. I mean, a young military guy, like he could have been hot stuff. <laughs> Possibly. But after they married, they moved to Cheyenne where Ron worked as a taxi driver and Alice took a job as a, in a, in a bar, um, a bartender. Why couldn't I think of that word? <laughs> um, she took a job at a, a bartender. The three of them, Ron, Alice, and Alice's 19-month-old daughter, Erica, who was from her second marriage, lived in a trailer home just outside of time. However, the marriage was not a happy one. Alice soon realized that her third husband was a violent man who could not control his temper. He was a brutal and vicious alcoholic, and this was not the kind of life Alice wanted for her and especially for her daughter. Yeah, I can't imagine like a, a more challenging decision to make of like, okay, you just got into this relationship with this person. Like, you're all really excited about it. And then you find out the darker side of things. Exactly. With life with them. And, of course, as a mother, you think the first thing you're thinking of is the well-being of your child. I mean, hopefully she's also looking out for herself, too. Yes, but I think um, any good mother puts their children first. Yeah. And rightfully so. It was less than five months into their marriage in February of 1975 that Alice filed for divorce. Records from the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs show that Ron was actually released from the psychiatric ward on a work-study program on December 25th, uh, the year just before Alice filed for divorce. However... Oh, was in 1974? Yes. So Christmas Eve, okay. 1974, he was released. But at the time of the filed divorce in February, he was nowhere to be found. The divorce was granted without Ron's signature on the papers because he could not be tracked down. And it was noted that he abandoned his wife and stepdaughter. After the divorce, Alice was ready to start fresh. She had no more contact with any of her estranged husbands. And after Christmas of 1974, his uh, Ron being, uh, his family never heard from him again. Despite the missing estranged husband, it did not take long for Alice to find another man. Working at an iron ore mine, she met divorcee Gerald Uden. Unfortunately, this relationship also came with baggage okay so i'm getting like a uh henry the eighth wives uh <laughs> vibe here like one divorced one died one disappeared uh, <laughs> and like, we know that she ends up with gerald but i'm wondering what this baggage is uh this is very compelling Right, and remember, Gerald and Alice have a very long, happy life together. Mm-hmm. So... They become grandparents together. Yeah, so you think maybe Alice has a bad taste in men, but maybe not, because Gerald is in it for the long haul? Hmm. 
Well, a few years prior to meeting, Gerald had himself had met another single divorced mom named Virginia Beard. Virginia had inherited a 22 caliber rifle from her grandfather, and she needed some money and thought she could sell it. And what do you know? Gerald was the local go-to guy for appraisals for weapons, and Virginia was referred to him. The rifle wasn't worth much, but their time together appraising it was, because it immediately sparked a romance. Oh my gosh, this is the untapped um, Hallmark movie <laughs> material. Once they've run out of all the other ideas, I think this has some potential. Yeah, once you miss your bus or miss your flight and you meet the person sitting next to you on your next bus or flight trip, once they're done with that, firearms. Yeah, like a firearms appraisal turns into a romance. I mean, obviously it's happened. (laughs) Right? Watch, we're going to turn on Hallmark Channel next week and they will have already done it. (laughs) So Virginia, at the time of meeting Gerald, had worked a couple of jobs, and she was struggling herself to make ends meet. Her pride and joy, though, were her two sons, Richard and Reagan. Her ex-husband, though, wasn't cut out for family life, so she could not count on him for supporting and economics for raising their sons. Gerald himself always wanted to be a dad, so when they started dating... And he learned that Virginia had kids. This did not scare him off at all. He was well-liked around town, and Virginia felt that he would make a perfect husband and stepfather to her boys. Gerald was somewhat of what people call a man's man, who knew how to handle guns and didn't shy away from a hard day's work. He, in turn, was all too happy to be a father figure to Reagan and Richard. He often took Richard and Reagan fishing and hunting and loved spending time with them. Before long, Gerald proposed to Virginia, and three months later, in July of 1974, they were married. To complete the picture and to make their family unit whole, Virginia asked Gerald if he could legally adopt Richard and Reagan. Gerald was elated to do so, and the adoption came through in March of 1975. Both boys took his last name, and that is how they became the happy family Uden. Gerald, though, was blindsided when only six weeks after the adoption was official, Virginia filed for divorce. That seems really strange because they went, you know, I've heard that you know, adoption, marriage, you know, name changes, all that paperwork is such a nightmare from what people have told me. So why would you go through all the trouble of getting all that, all signing off on everything, and then just be like, oh, I take it all back. Exactly. Um, And I do get it. Um, Sometimes people rush into things. Because mm-hmm. um, their romance was pretty quick. It was. I mean, they got engaged after a short time. They were married after a short time. And then just shortly after getting married, you know, he adopted their kids. It was all pretty rushed. 
So I could kind of see where Virginia is like, oh, maybe this wasn't what I thought. But Gerald seems like a pretty nice guy. So, and it's not like um, Alice's ex-husband that was abusive. Um, It seems like there was nothing to really run away from that I could find. So after they, after she filed divorce, they did split up. But seeing as he adopted Virginia's sons, Richard and Reagan, he still had joint custody. It was soon after the divorce that uh, Gerald and Alice did meet. Virginia was not happy about the new love in Gerald's life. But Gerald was not about to allow Virginia to ruin his relationship with Alice. I just imagine that Alice just like, hey, you know, I have got this six shooter that needs to be appraised. And she's like, no, that was my thing. I I don't know. (laughs) You'll find out. So at this point, Gerald was burning the candles at both ends. He was trying to start his new life with Alice and her daughter, Erica, while still trying to keep his ex, Virginia, and his adopted sons happy. That sounds like quite a juggling act. Yeah, very much. Virginia did not make it easy on Gerald, and Alice hated her for it. Alice encouraged Gerald to stand up to Virginia, but he assured her that everything would settle down once all the dust settled. One of Alice's friends, who worked at the mine with her and Gerald, said Alice always complained that Gerald never had any money. Because he had to pay child support to Virginia's two sons. And this put enormous financial strain on not only him, but their marriage. Alice could not stand the thought of Virginia and her kids still having control on some part of Gerald's life. As time went on, Gerald too turned hostile towards Virginia. He felt that her behavior became intolerable constantly demanding him to babysit, to watch the kids, for extra financial support on top of what he was already court-ordered. However, as a legal adopted parent, Gerald had to face and accept that Virginia was part of their lives, like it or not. Gerald asked Virginia, Richard, and Reagan if they wanted to go bird hunting and target shooting on Saturday, September 13th. This was something he did with the boys often, as mentioned earlier. The boys were excited to go and arranged to meet Gerald on a corner in Pavilion, which is another town in Wyoming, near Gerald's property. About a 40-minute drive from Leander, where Virginia and the boys lived. It's important to note that Gerald reminded Virginia to bring along that twenty-two rifle that he had appraised before, as he thought it would be a great extra weapon to have as they were hunting. Virginia and the boys borrowed her mom, Claire's, station wagon and left Claire's home around 1.30 to go and meet Gerald. It was getting late, And Virginia's mother was not concerned that the uh, boys and their mother had not yet returned. But then Gerald arrived at her home and asked her if she knew where Virginia was. He'd been waiting for them, but they never showed up. 
Claire instantly felt that something wasn't right. Virginia was on her way to meet Gerald, and if her plans had changed, she surely would have let her mother know. But then together, Gerald and Virginia's mother drove the route that Virginia should have taken to meet him, but there was no sign of her mother's station wagon along the route. Yeah, this is really strange. Uh, and if Gerald is somehow implicated, I think that it's actually a brilliant move for him to be like, hey, I was waiting for them. Have you seen them? It makes him look a lot more uh, a lot more innocent. And But if he's the one who is responsible for their disappearance... Uh, that's it's going to be a lot harder to prove that it was him because he looks concerned. Mm-hmm, exactly. But by the next day, Virginia's mother had not heard back from her, and she just knew that her daughter and her grandchildren were in trouble. So she made her way to the police station to report them missing. Police in this area did got did not get many missing person cases and they weren't too concerned at first after all virginia was a 32 year old adult and with tension between her and her ex-husband perhaps he just wanted to get away perhaps she wanted to make a new start somewhere else i feel like that's never the case it's like you know what just treat everything like it's a serious emergency and then that way if if it ends up not being a big deal, then great. You overreacted and no harm, no foul. But when it's like, oh, no, it's probably nothing. And then it turns out to be something, man, that looks really bad. Exactly. <laughs> and you might have missed a super important window of opportunity. Because don't they say what, like the first 48 hours are the most important yep in a missing persons yeah. case. And if anything lasts beyond that, it's like your odds of finding that person like go down drastically. Exactly. So when hearing the news that they didn't think there was much alarm, Virginia's mother was furious. She noted that Virginia had not packed any clothes or belongings for herself or the kids. Virginia did not have much money to survive on, let alone uh, pack up belongings to start over in a new place with no support. And further stated that if that is what she wanted to do, she would definitely have told her mother. They were very yeah, close. This is not the era of like just taking your bank card with you. Like exactly, this, this is still what the the eighties. Okay, so it's. This is still like check writing era. Right. Yeah. And so it's not like you could just travel super easily without having like your like all of your like bank stuff with you. So it's, you know, she's got to feed these kids somehow if they were on an impromptu road trip. And mm -hmm, exactly. If she didn't have that much money on her, that's not going to last very long. Mm-hmm. Which, correction, this is uh, just before the 80s, but still, okay. same point. Same so, point. Yeah. Yes. 
with no sign of mother and sons in the days that followed, and with pressure from Virginia's mother, Claire, a full-scale search for the missing family was launched. Gerald was questioned at his farm. He was as baffled and confused as investigators were. He had no idea where Virginia and her sons could be. He explained their marital situation to explice to the police, making it clear that although he was the adoptive father of Richard and Reagan, there was no lost uh, love between him and Virginia. Police then looked up Virginia's first husband, Jack Beard, the two boys' biological father. He confirmed that he did not have anything to do with his ex-family anymore. He never saw them, did not support them, and police were able to confirm his alibi for the day that uh, Virginia and the two sons went missing. He was eliminated guess, as a suspect. Right. That I feel like that's a natural first, um, like, like a natural like first suspect to come up. Uh, especially like an ex-husband, where like they were did not seem to be like they were on speaking terms. So, I could definitely see if there was something like he felt like he deserved to have his kids back for some reason. I could totally see that being uh, some terrible like parental custody dispute that could end terribly. But obviously had a, sounds like he had a solid alibi. So it's not Mr. Beard. Right. But then, just a short while after the disappearance, Virginia's mother received a typed letter from her. In the letter, Virginia said that she had to leave suddenly because she was in trouble. There was no time to tell her mom that she was going away, and she apologized if her disappearance had caused her mom to worry. She also said that she was then in Illinois, staying with friends. And from there... The plan was to move herself and her sons to Pennsylvania. For a fleeting moment, her mother felt some sort of comfort. They're still alive. But then questions came. What sort of trouble would Virginia be in to make her flee from her hometown? Who were the friends she was staying with? Why didn't she simply call? Why was the letter typed and not handwritten? And also, why was it signed Virginia when she always referred to herself and her mother as just Jin? Oh, that is a big red flag right there. I think also what I think is very funny with typed letters, especially from this era, there are people who are experts in like typewriters of this era, you know, it when it came like they could look at a typewritten thing and they'd be able to tell you exactly what model typewriter mm -hmm, right. you use. Yeah. So if you are the perpetrator and you're trying to pass off this letter uh as authentic, uh you better you better buy yourself a new typewriter because that old one is gonna be traced to that letter if they ever find you. Mm -hmm, exactly. And then 
three weeks after the disappearance, police discovered Virginia's mom's station wagon, which she had borrowed to meet Gerald on the day she went missing. It was found near Trout Creek Canyon, not far from her mother's home. It appeared as if someone had tried to push it into the canyon, but it became lodged on some rocks 70 feet from the top. The station wagon was then covered with pine branches as an attempt to conceal it. Uh, like all all signs pointing to foul play. Like exactly. You're trying to cover your tracks and it doesn't sound like they did a very good job of it. No. And uh, even more signs that point to foul play. The back seat of the station wagon was covered in a large amount of blood. Uh Okay, like, you're not even going to set the car on fire or something or, like, try to clean it up because you are just leaving a big old crime scene. Mm-hmm. And there's bound to be evidence left there. Right. However, in 1980, before DNA testing was the standard, forensic technicians were able a mat- to make a blood type match. So they can't like identify, yes, this is this person, but they can at least say what type of blood it was. Mm -hmm. And this blood type was type A, which was a match to Virginia. Which would make perfect sense because she was the one who would have been driving the car. Yep. Yep. And she is the one that's missing. So police set up a search of the direct area, but could not find any trace of Virginia or her son's. The biggest question now was, was Virginia injured or dead? And where were the boys? Yeah, uh, you'd think that, you know, him adopting the boys, you'd think that he would at least have some sort of warm feelings toward them. I mean, for all this time, he was trying to make it work. uh, Exactly. Like, like, he was very 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 loving like he wanted to be with these kids right and he wanted to be a dad so this was his chance to be a dad even if it wasn't his own flesh and blood you know you'd think that he was at least treating these kids like they were well yeah i mean we see later on with alice's daughter erica that wasn't his biological daughter yeah but they had a very long happy life together in missouri Interesting. Okay, so I'm. I I almost said I'm dying to know. Uh, that's <laughs> that's a, not on the nose. That was not the wording I wanted to use, <laughs> but uh, I'm e- eager to know what happens next yeah. in this investigation. Well, time went by, and there were no new clues in the case. Police appealed to the public for any information. But nobody knew anything. Richard Mm. and Reagan's photos were printed on milk cartons and in newspapers, but it yielded no new leads for years. Gerald was feeling the pressure from the local community. After the bloodstained car was found, people felt that he was somehow involved. He received threats and went to police to report that someone had given him a death warning. He even received an anonymous letter saying that the writer of the letter knows that he harmed Virginia and the boys, and they will seek revenge. 
that's interesting because it makes you wonder if it's like if that would yield a confession where it's like somebody knows or if it would just make him more obstinate and like make him dig in even deeper right um so gerald suspected that it was possibly a member of virginia's family but he couldn't be certain Police looked into anyone who could possibly have a reason to get rid of Virginia. But there was absolutely no one who would gain by having her and her boys taken out. No one except for Gerald, who would be free from paying child support. But was that really a strong enough reason to hurt or even kill his ex-wife? Police had no concrete evidence linking Gerald to the case. It was just circumstantial. Even if there had been hard feelings be he himself in Virginia, he was very and genuinely concerned about his missing adoptive sons. So when Jared was laid off from work at the steel iron ore mine where he and Alice had met, he and Alice then made that decision to move to Missouri along with their daughter Alice. Police thought it was strange that he would move over a thousand miles away while his sons were still missing. However, given his work situation and the huge cloud of suspicion and threats coming his way, it wasn't really surprising. Yeah, that would, you know, sometimes when you're faced with tragedy like this, your instinct is to be like, well, I need to put as much distance between this and me as I can, especially if you're getting threats, you know, that would motivate me to want to like pick up and leave too. Exactly. I completely understand. So Gerald, Alice and Erica set up their new home in Chadwick, Missouri and managed to make a basically normal life away from scrutiny and suspicion. Back in Wyoming, Virginia's mother was getting increasingly anxious for information about her missing daughter and grandsons. She suspected that Gerald knew more than he was letting on, but had no way of proving it. The typed letter also still made her uneasy. Was it possible that Gerald's new wife, Alice, could have sent it? Was it possible that Gerald could have sent it? Was it too far-fetched to think that Alice could have tried to throw Virginia's mother off of uh, Virginia's missing person case trail? Virginia's mother was so desperate, she even contacted a psychic to help her find the answers. But there were no definitive answers to be found. Hmm. At this point, Virginia... Richard and Reagan's missing person case went cold for 12 years. Virginia's mother and local investigators never gave up, though. But there was simply no information that could help find an answer. At the same time, Gerald, Alice, and Erica were doing well in Missouri. They gave Erica the best home they could. They were supportive, and as mentioned earlier, often seen at school and church gatherings. But then, remember, there was a 12-year break in the case. 
In November of 1992, Wyoming police were surprised when a young man walked into the local police station and said he needed to reveal a very dark family secret. Oh, this is like TV show kind of twist, it sounds like. No, it really is. Like, as I mentioned, when I heard this case, I was like, I need to cover this because it just gripped me. It's like watching a movie, but it's insane that this is real life. Mm -hmm. This man was Todd Scott, who was Alice Uden's son from her first marriage. Hmm. Scott told police that Alice was married to Gerald Uden, but she was also married to a man before named Ron Holtz. Ron was the Vietnam veteran. He okay, said Ron who who div- got the divorce without being present. Exactly, the one that abandoned um, mm-hmm. Alice and her children. Todd told the authorities that Ron was an abusive man who often hit Alice and himself. He was a heavy drinker, and that combined with his psychiatric problems as a result from his PTSD was not a good mixture. According to Todd, he was driving with driving in his car with his mother one day. His mother had been drinking, and she simply just kind of relaxingly said that she had killed Ron. Whoa, so yeah. that's why he didn't show up at the divorce proceedings. Ding, ding, ding. Um, so Alice told her son that one night Ron had passed out after a night of been drinking. She decided that she was done with not only the abuse of herself, but the abuse of her child. And when Ron was blacked out in a completely unresponsive state, she snuck up on him with her twenty-two rifle and shot him in the head. Oof, that sounds messy. Mm-hmm. So, at this point, it is important to notice that... So, she's telling her adult son this story. But at that time, if you remember from the beginning, she had little baby Erica. Mm-hmm. So, after the murder, she took Erica to Ron's parents in Commerce County, Colorado, which was a two-hour drive one way. And then returned to the home to dispose of Ron's body. She emptied a large 55-gallon cardboard barrel that she used to store Christmas decorations in. Pushed Ron inside and then rolled the barrel onto the porch of their trailer home and dropped it into the trunk of the car. Nothing to see here. Just taking the Christmas decorations for a ride. Yep, and we're they're old. We're gonna go donate them. Todd said that his mother then told him that a friend helped get rid of Ron's body in an abandoned gold mine on a ranch between Cheyenne and Laramie. It's important to know that Alice Uden had once been a cattle caretaker with her second husband, Don Prunty, and they lived on a farm in that exact area where the abandoned gold mine should have been. Hmm. 
This sounds a, like a like a Western version of uh, Goodbye Earl, <laughs> right? From the from the the Dixie Chicks. Yes, very much so. Don or Todd felt very strongly that his mother, having worked on that farm, knew about the mine shaft, and knew that this would be a perfect dumping spot to hide Ron's body, as no one would ever go there. With Ron out of the way, Alice then needed to move on, and when the paperwork for the divorce came through, she was free to do so. She told Ron's family that he just ran off and abandoned her. His family knew his mental health issues, and so did the court, so there were no questions asked. They really had no reason to doubt her. Right, it seems like the perfect victim, honestly, like... One, it's like, who's going to miss somebody who was already kind of like uh, like a flight risk anyway? Exactly. Hmm. But there was more to Todd's stunning revelation and confession of this dark secret. Because he believed that Ron's murder could also lead to solving what happened to Virginia and her sons. Finally, police had something to follow up on. However, there was a catch because Ron Holt was never reported as missing or dead. So it'd be essential to find his body. Archaeologists went to the site and started to, to dig and this would last for many years. If Ron was indeed there, his body would have been buried under 20 years worth of animal remains and debris. Oh, that sounds like... Um mess and a half mm-hmm. so like imagine finding like all these bones but then they're not human bones they are mm. like coyote bones or cow bones which can be the same size of a human bone so it's it would not only would like digging through all those layers take a while but also just having to examine everything you find yeah where you, you just can't be too sure on anything so then we have another long pause in the story because 11 years after Todd Scott told police about his mother's confession in 2005, Wyoming police then visited her at her home in Missouri. So it took them that long to like 11, question her? 11 effing years. Um, so I imagine... I feel like they could have just been like, hey... We've got some questions for you. We have it on good account that you may have murdered someone. So if you wouldn't mind taking us on a little tour of where you might have dropped the body. Yeah. I imagine like, like, I imagine there's lots of people where if they were confronted with that, they would just be like, I'll tell you everything. Yes. And what I don't understand though, is that, when people give tips to investigators, investigators are supposed to follow up on that. Why, if they were digging in this mine for Ron's body, why did it take them so long to even question the person who has been outed as being responsible? Like, mm -hmm. what's, I don't understand that disconnect. I don't I mean, it. I think even if you just asked a few rudimentary questions, like you didn't, you don't even have to pose it as a murder investigation. It'd just be like, 
we are looking at your ex-husband as a missing persons case and you may have been one of the last people to see him so answer whatever questions you can exactly that would be the way to go about it i would think it's like hey we noticed your husband never showed up for divorce court back in the 70s he has no record have you heard from him type of thing yeah but they didn't um and when they did visit her finally in 2005 they did not reveal what they had been told however they did ask her to provide them with a complete family tree which i find very interesting and this is like a very sneaky tactic that they use which Although we just slammed them for not following up, <laughs> this tactic was like very well utilized. It's funny. It just, it's like uh, giving her a, a homework assignment. Yeah, basically. <laughs> You're like, now complete a family tree for us and you'll be graded on not only content, but penmanship. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. And when she did complete this homework assignment, it was noted that there was no indication of ever being married to a Ron Holtz. Oh, that's weird that she would have just forgotten about that. Yeah. And the investigators did ask her when they asked her about Ron Holtz and she heard her name. It said that she fell back against the wall in complete shock. Oh, she hoped that everybody else had forgotten about it, too. Yep. Her reason for leaving Ron out was because she said they were married for such a short amount of time. They never had children together and she never relied on him for anything after they separated. In her mind, it wasn't really considered a real marriage since it was, you know, a very loveless, very short lived time. Hmm. Which honestly, like. It's not wrong. (laughs) Like, is your five-month marriage to an abusive alcoholic who treats you terribly really a love relationship? Right. I feel like it's still something that would be worth noting. And, like, you wouldn't wouldn't just be like, I totally forgot about that period of my life. Like, no, I'm pretty sure that would stick with you. Mm Mm-hmm. So while all this was going on, back in Wyoming... Investigators never gave up their search for Virginia, Richard, and Reagan. An archaeologist team from the University of Wyoming spent the summer of 2008 digging around an old property that um, they owned in Wyoming. They concentrated on the area around of the pigsty, which would be the farm where Alice worked, but they did not find anything. Hmm. But meanwhile, back in Missouri, both Alice and Gerald continued to drive for their trucking business. But as Alice was getting older, her health caught up. She was diagnosed with cancer and started receiving chemotherapy. Spending most of her time at home, Alice raised chickens and neighbors would buy eggs from her. She would talk about her grandchildren and that there was nothing about her that seemed out of place. They're your typical elderly neighbors. On the other side, though, law enforcement knew that either Alice or Gerald or both of them 
were involved in the disappearance and murder of Ron and possibly Virginia and her kids. They just needed more concrete evidence. After no less than 14 years of on and off periods of excavation, archaeologists at the ranch of Miami finally found what they're looking for, human remains. Oh, dang. I'm wondering who's there. Who is it? As mentioned earlier, unsuccessful attempts were previously made, which were either cattle or other types of animals. But in August of 2013, they dug deeper into the mine shaft itself, about 40 feet. Parts of the human remains was a skull marked with an unmistakable shape of a bullet hole. Inside the skull was a 22 caliber bullet. Oh, dang. Someone did not clean up after themselves. No, no, no. Um, and you remember both um, before and after Gerald met Alice, she mentioned that she had that 22. Mm-hmm. DNA tests confirmed that these remains belonged to Ron Holtz. So the time had come to arrest Alice for the murder of her third husband, Ron. With all the information they were given from her son, plus these remains, it was a kind of open and closed case. On September 16th of 2013, almost to the day of what had been her and Ron's 39th wedding anniversary, the FBI stopped at Alice's home in Missouri and arrested her. The investigator showed her a photo of Ron and said to her, this is Ron, your ex-husband. And she simply said in quotes, is it? Oh, oh don't play dumb just because you're an old lady now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like you may be in your 70s, but you still got some cognitive function going on in there. Yeah. So they next showed her a photo of Ron's skull with the bullet hole and said, this is also Ron. And the next question was straight to the point. Did you kill your husband? To everyone's surprise, Alice freely admitted that she shot Ron back in 1974. She told investigators about the abuse and that she was scared of him. Her story confirmed the information that her son, Todd, had given police decades before. However, it goes as this. One day, while Ron was sleeping, uh, little Erica was crying in her crib in the next room. It always annoyed Ron when Erica cried. But on this particular day, when the crying woke him, he was enraged. Alice intervened to stop him from hurting the young girl. In a scuffle, she landed on the floor next to the closet, and inside the closet was the rifle. When Alice saw Ron going back to her daughter's crib, she grabbed the rifle and shot him in the head to protect her daughter. Hmm. She left him on the floor next to the crib where he had died, Until she returned from Colorado, remember, she took Erica to stay with grandparents? Yep. 
And that's when she put his body into the Christmas decoration box before driving out to the ranch where she threw his body down the mine shaft. Investigators asked if anyone had helped her, and she said no. Remember, Todd said that she said someone did help her. I was going to say, like, uh, a lifeless body is very heavy. I mean, not that I know from experience, but, like, if you're trying to move somebody who is totally uncooperative, and also he's had some time to lay out there, so rigor mortis is probably set in. So you've got this big, dead, stiff body. That's not going to be very easy for one person to handle on their own. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, but then, after this confession was made, a question everybody in the room was eager to answer, get to an answer was, do you know what happened to Virginia, Richard, and Reagan, your husband's previous wife and adopted sons? Alice knew nothing. Hmm. When Gerald arrived home to find that Alice had been arrested, he knew that was only a matter of time before police came for him, too. He notably said to his 20-year-old grandson, Erica's son, that, don't be scared, but this is it. Yikes, that sounds so final. I know. I'm like, what? what is it? Like, yeah. What do you think is going to happen? Then there was a knock at the door. At this point, Gerald had not spoken with Alice since she had been taken into custody. Police now knew that Alice had admitted to murdering her ex-husband, Ron. But they weren't sure if she was involved with Virginia and her two sons. So, another, like snaps for the police in this case when they talked to gerald they bluffed they Mm. told him that alice had been arrested for virginia and his adopted sons which i don't know if that's really allowed but it's what they did and gerald could not let his wife take the blame for something that he did In custody, he confessed that he was the one that killed his ex-wife, Virginia, and his two adopted sons, Richard and Reagan. He told the story of what happened on that fateful day in 1980 with the horrifying details of those members' last moments. Dang, that is cold that, you know, he is now admitting that he took out his his ex-wife and the two kids the two kids that he had taken in as his own he loved like, them yeah like, like that is so messed up that like you saw them as obstacles to your future yeah exactly. and and that like, you were willing to just throw them away like they were trash I'm I'm kind of glad that both of these two are getting their just desserts here. Exactly. You know, even though it's a little late, but for this case to be solved with both of them being 
held responsible. Hopefully we're not at the end yet. Um, that's what I'm hoping for anyway, that they both face the music for what they both did. Right. So Gerald did admit that he had invited Virginia, Richard and Reagan to go hunting with him. And he says that um, once they arrived at their location, he pulled off the main road and stopped the car near an irrigation canal. He said the boys were very excited to shoot Virginia's twenty-two caliber rifle that she had brought along, and he'd asked that she bring along. And Gerald said he told Virginia he wanted to test it first. When he fired a test shot and the firearm was in good working order, he said, okay, we can continue. Like, very nonchalant. Mm-hmm. It's like, seems like, okay, yeah, that seems like a normal thing to do. You, you like, you don't want like some great game to come across your path and then you aim to shoot and then it doesn't, doesn't right. go off. Yeah. I would trust someone. Yeah. But then this story grew very chilling. He directed Virginia and the boys to walk down to where they would take um, take up camp, basically, for their hunt. He trailed behind them. And he said that Virginia was there, the gun was there, I was there. As she walked, I shot her square in the back of the head. I whirled around and shot Richard. By this time, Reagan had noticed, became alarmed, and went running. However, he tripped and fell, and that's when I walked over to him and shot him once in the head. All three oh, he fell to like the slasher movie death. Yeah. Oh, that's so sad. And I can't imagine just the horrified look on his face. And and it makes you wonder like. Did he look him in the eye when I'm sure he did? He sounds very like I mean, because he he killed Virginia in like the most cowardly way, like when yep. her back was turned. Yep. And it sounds like he did the same thing to Richard. Ugh. It's yeah. just it's so sad and just so despicable that you know, even somewhere in this in the middle ground when he was doing what he was doing. It was a mini killing spree Yep, that he had no moment of clarity, like no moment of like, this is a really terrible thing that I'm doing. Like, this is something I shouldn't be doing. And it's like, Nope, you just, you didn't just double down. You tripled down. Yeah. From one thing that I read is that like, he took out his entire family in less than one minute, Ugh. which is insane. That's sick. And yeah, I mean, yeah, I suppose uh, if it only took a minute, uh, you're already in this state of adrenaline and like obviously not a, the right state of mind. I mean, you'd have to be in a terrible dark place to even consider doing this. So uh, it's that's heartbreaking and so unnerving. Mm hmm. So after killing Virginia and his two adopted sons, uh, Gerald did load them into the back of her mother's station wagon, where he drove them out to the gold mines, which he knew about thanks to Alice. 
and dumped their bodies there. However, after months later, he retrieved their bodies, sealed them inside 66-gallon steel drums, poked holes into them, and then sunk them in Fremont Lake in western Wyoming. Fremont Lake is 10 miles long and about a mile wide. It is one of the deepest lakes in the U.S. as well. Oh, I did not know that. That Mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, how we we were talking earlier, what was it, last year, about how lake, like places like Lake Mead were. Uh Uh-huh, yep. I mean, these lakes that we thought we would never see get so low, the water levels dropped so low that, like, there were some human remains that were being that were surfacing that some people I think intended never to be found. So exactly. this does not sound like a lake that would ever have that same problem. Mm-hmm. Stunned by Gerald's recount of the heartless crime he committed over 30 years ago at that time, police placed him under arrest and escorted him out of uh, Missouri. And just before he was sent along with Alice to Wyoming, he turned to their daughter, Erica, and said, I'm sorry. It's like, um, you got a long list of apologies to make, sir. Yep. How crazy would that be to, like, grow up thinking you've got this totally normal life and then find out that both of your, of the people that you considered your family like your parents were both killers exactly this is it's just nuts yep so of the two back in wyoming gerald was the first to stand trial he refused to have legal representation and insisted on having a court-appointed attorney Hmm. he was not willing to put up much of a fight and to order to avoid death penalty, he pleaded guilty. Thank God saved some uh, some real pain and suffering of dragging that all out again. Like, I know trials like that are really hard on the families. Oh, so yeah. It's, I feel like it's much better to be like, he realized what he did, and he's going to go away f- probably for the rest of his life because yep. at this point he's in his was 70s. he in his 70s yep. yeah yep. i mean and with the lifespan of people today like he could he could be in jail for another 20 30 years mm-hmm. exactly. and live out uh his existence behind bars i guess we'll see with the end of the story how things Mm -hmm. turned out. Yeah. Well, in the trial, Gerald told the court about Virginia and the true nature of her relationship. He described her as a predator who only married him under false pretenses. uh, Because if you remember, uh, Richard and Reagan's biological father would not pay child support. So Gerald believed that she married him with the motive of getting a father who could support her sons. And that it's is like, why, well, then you should have stayed together, I guess. Well, mm-hmm. that is why he claims shortly after the adoption was official. Remember, it was just six months later mm-hmm. that Virginia filed for divorce. 
He says that she was insistent on the child support payments, but did not honor the terms of the separation and that she would not let him see their boys. Oh, so she wanted she wanted the financial support, didn't didn't want the emotional support. That's according to Gerald. Hmm. But of course, when you, you are the killer and you've silenced the other person forever, they don't get to say their side of the story. But then he furthered to say that when he and Alice started their relationship, that once he began to prioritize his new family, because Virginia wouldn't let him see his adopted sons, that Virginia made it increasingly more difficult. He says that she tried to cause trouble between himself and Alice and used their adoptive sons as part of her agenda. He says that he started to buckle under the pressure. It wasn't the child support payments that bothered him. He could afford that. But he was constantly being nagged by both Virginia and Alice and could not take the pressure anymore. So something had to be done. And that something in his brain was that to make the source of his problems go away. He then admitted on in trial that he planned to kill Virginia and both Richard and Reagan before they set out on that fatal afternoon. Gosh, like why the kids though? Like the kids didn't do anything wrong. They merely were existed. And if they're and your it's... adoptive kids, like, like they a, really Virginia... are your responsibility. Yeah, and like A, Virginia should not have been murdered, but let's let's say she was. If they're adoptive kids, then you now get your kids and you don't have to worry about making that payment that you say you can do. Yeah. There's just someone else that it's making it like annoying for you to do. Mm-hmm. You know, like why can't again Virginia should not be murdered, but why why couldn't he just stop at Virginia and then take the kids into his home? Yeah, it it doesn't sound like he thought this through very well. No, but, not but he all. just wanted to like he just wanted everything to be fresh start blank slate and this was a surefire way to do it yep exactly um so gerald in trial did have no excuse for what he had done other than what we just talked about and in no surprise he was sentenced to life in prison in 2013 and to this day, he's currently in the Wyoming State Penitentiary in Torrington, Wyoming. Good. I, I'm i hoping uh, his stay is long and uncomfortable. Um, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's a shame that it took so long to get to that point. But and, you know, even if his claims are true about like Virginia being kind of and like manipulative and like trying to mess up his his new life it, you know it's it it's no excuse you know it's exactly. just it's basically taking like like a child's level of morality where it's like you made me mad i make you go away yes very much so it, it's so like overly simplistic and you know, just like adults not being adults 
and using mm-hmm. violence to uh to like solve their problems Very it's much just so dumb and he deserve he's right where he deserves to be i agree but then what about alice now alice is a little bit more complicated yes now did like i hate the thought of you know her her and her kids having to under like having to put up with his abuse Uh uh-huh um it just makes me wish that there would have been a place that she could have gone that was a guaranteed safe space which is i mean it's even hard to find those sometimes in urban areas much less you know rural wyoming obviously her ex-husband should have gotten better mental health care i would hope and maybe he wouldn't have had some of the issues that he had but at the same time like this does feel like a goodbye earl yeah very much moment but you know you really hate to have to have to resort to violence and right you know again with her story where it sounds like there might be two different conflicting uh stories where like one is that she killed him when he was out cold and then the other one is that she killed him in defense of her child mm-hmm. so it's like I don't know who to believe because you're the killer here. Like the other side of the story doesn't get to be told. Right. And like it was openly admitted by her children that yes, her ex-husband who she murdered was abusive. Mm -hmm. So it's like, who do you believe? Yeah. But her court did go into trial shortly after um, Gerald was convicted and in 2014, um, Alice's uh, court began, and she in court was noted as becoming frail and very is very visibly an elderly woman because mm-hmm, she, she had was, been also fighting cancer this correct. time, correct? Yeah, this yep. time too, and undergoing chemo. I can imagine be like cool, and then like the stress on your body of also undergoing a murder trial, and that's gonna age you real quick. Yeah. Um, In the courtroom, she was noticeably seen in a wheelchair um, using a um, breathing machine and she had hearing aids, um, which, you know, can all kind of add kind of sympathy effect. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But she did hard to it's really hard to convict grandma. Yes. But she did plead not guilty to the first degree murder charge against her. Hmm. When asked about Ron, though, on stand, she said, I've tried to atone for it. I wish I never would have met him so that none of this would have ever happened. He was a very frightened man and frightening man, and I was a very frightened woman. She told the story again of how Ron flew into rage when Erica started crying in her crib and he was inches away from attacking her. She claims he said, I'm going to kill her if she doesn't shut up, meaning Erica. Mm -hmm. 
But prosecution was quick to point out the inconsistencies between Alice and her adult son, Ron, or her husband, Ron's death over the years given by her adult son. You know, it was said, as you mentioned earlier, sometimes he was sleeping. Sometimes he was asleep. Sometimes Erica woke him up. Um, and it was just all very inconsistent. Mm-hmm. However, the most damning of all was arguably the testimony of the man who started this whole investigation, her son, Todd. Todd, who I can not even begin to understand what it must be like to tell authorities that your mother killed somebody. Yeah, that's um, gotta be uh, like a, at least like top five hardest things you could ever do. <laughs> right. Um, and at the age of 53, after decades of keeping the secret, he mm-hmm. got on stand and again reiterated the story he told police uh, just years before. Todd said he had told many people over the years and he wanted to tell more, but he was just scared about what that would do to his relationship with his mother. He said, I don't know why my mother would tell me that she killed somebody. Which at that point, his mother turned, seated in her wheelchair and said to her own son, I hate you. Oh, that's just devastating where it's like, he's doing the right thing. Like he's telling the, telling the truth of what he remembers. And like, she cannot be like, she cannot be mad at him for being honest. It's like, you are just mad because it's now catching up to you. Mm -hmm. Which in in like response to this, do you know what his, Todd said to his mother. Oh my gosh. Does he, did he say something like heartbreaking? Like I forgive you or something. He said, I hope it was worth it. Ooh. Oh, I love that. I love a good dagger twist. Mm-hmm. So after deliber- deliberating for a day and a half, the jury found Alice guilty of second degree murder. I'm sure her comments probably didn't help her case a little bit. Oh, no, I'm sure. Yeah. They did not find her guilty of premeditated murder because, like, they, yes, she was in an abusive relationship, you know, so they kind of gave her a little lessening Mm -hmm. sentence just because of the situation she was already in. Mm -hmm. Does that Um, become, I, I, you know, I can't remember my, which degrees are which, like, I imagine it would probably be like a second degree murder or something like that, mm -hmm. maybe? Yeah, it was second degree. Okay, so that's what she was found guilty of, which certainly I feel like that fits the crime the best from what we can corroborate, at least. Yes. And also, I do think it's good to mention that the jury in Alice's um, court did not have information about her husband Gerald's ongoing trial. So it was completely separate. So whether or not they truly did not know about it, but they were not exclusively told like, hey, her husband also murdered his ex-wife. Yeah. Boy, match made in somewhere. Uh Uh-huh. Alice was then sentenced to life in prison, 
which is the maximum sentence for second degree murder in the state of Wyoming. There was a petition on change.org asking to overturn her sentence. However, it only had nine supporters and it was quickly shut down. You say nine, like... Yes, nine. Like this many? <laughs> yes, nine. Wow. Yeah, so... um. I guess, unfortunately, maybe fortunately, depending on how people look at it, just a few months after Alice was convicted and sentenced to life in prison, she did succumb to cancer. Mm -hmm. um, so she will not live out her time in prison, but also she's an admitted murderer and is no longer on this earth. So however people want to take that, be what you will. Right. I, I think at least, you know, I kind of hate it when people get to go to their grave and never have to like publicly answer for their, their crimes you know that's it that's when i feel like justice isn't served or it, like justice really isn't served um you know even if it took this long she went to her grave knowing that everyone knew what she did mm -hmm. and I think that that is a little bit of justice in the end, you know, I, even though she still got to live out a full life, you know, she got to, she got to, she got to live at, live to be a grandma and, and got to see her child grow up. And, but man, that is, uh, that is one cold granny. Exactly. So she was never charged with the murders of Virginia, Richard, and Reagan. But the fact that her victim, as well as Gerald's victims, ended up in abandoned mine shafts does make people wonder what was discussed behind closed doors. So as mentioned, Gerald is still living and will spend the rest of his living life in penitentiary in Wyoming. However, what about the child, Erica? She feels like she has lost both parents. As mentioned, she's now an adult with a child of her own, and she agrees that justice has been served, but that her family has also been robbed. She does not have parents to go to anymore. Her child does not get a chance to build that grandparent relation. And she says, what do you do with the knowledge, knowing that the people who raised you, people who loved you, and people who took care of you are also murderers? <laughs> Erica says that she sees the whole thing as a warped love story. A story where her mother killed to protect herself and her stepfather killed to be with her mother. Yeah, that is like... Uh... It's like a gangster love story right there. Um, mm -hmm. Boy. Yeah. I, I, my heart really goes out to Erica. Cause like she, like, cause Erica is like the most innocent person in this whole mess of a story. And uh, like you said, yeah, she just lost both parents in one fell swoop. And it, you you just are left scratching your head like these were the people who like you said who took care of me and i'm sure like taught me right from wrong and raised me up to be 
the mother that I am today. And that's got to be it. There's got to be at least a little bit of that where I'm like, you question who you are as a person. Like, mm-hmm. you, exactly. Like, has everything been a lie this whole time? Um, but I hope that Erica just can get through this and realize that, you know, she is her own person and that she can focus on being a good mom and building community. You know, this might be a great opportunity to build a chosen family. Uh, I hope she's got some, some people that uh, she can fall back on, you know, even if they aren't her biological parents, that there are people in her community that care about her and love her. Um, So we definitely uh, send our best wishes to Erica, who has had to endure the after effects of these crimes. Completely agree. Couldn't have said it better. Um, but also we do need to extend our hearts out to um, Virginia, Richard, and Reagan, who, despite every year from what I found since 2013, investigators have scanned the bottom of Fremont Lake and there have yet to be any remains found. Oh, that is, yeah, that is really heartbreaking that it's like, who knows if or when their remains will resurface like they are lost in the bottom of of this insanely deep lake and i really hope that they can find them mm-hmm. and give them a proper resting place cuz you know it's not the same if you you know to have like a memorial for someone if you don't know where their bones rest and i really hope that they can find find them and especially get that closure for their family. Um, so yeah, that's where the case is today. Um, Alice passed away and she was convicted of murder of Ron and Gerald's in prison for the convicted murder of Virginia, Richard and uh, Reagan. So that's where we're at today. Dang, um, that is, uh, I can see why you were so enthralled with this because i like every step of the way i was intrigued and yeah there there, it's a messy story because it's not black and white you know it's it's not like you can just easily point to you know who were the good people and who were the bad people like there was violence going on there was potentially manipulation going on like boy it doesn't get much messier than this. Exactly. And like, what are the, as you mentioned earlier, like what are the odds of two people that murdered people in their past wind up together and then can keep that secret for 30 years? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that so is. I just, ugh. I saw it. I couldn't wait to share it. Um, yeah. And I would like to thank my sources that I got it from. One being investigation discoveries married with secrets um and then also evidence locker podcast which i listened to after i found about the story and the episode is titled killer grandparents alice and gerald uden very interesting all right Um, yeah so i did find 
photos of Alice and Gerald, uh, but I also did find uh, photos of Virginia, Richard, and Reagan. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't find anything on Ron, but you can find those photos that I did find on our socials at Dark and Devious Podcast on Facebook or Instagram. If y'all want to partake. Excellent. I will be eagerly awaiting that to be posted because I'm very curious to see who these players are, what they look like. Uh, excellent case selection, if I do say so myself. Well, thank you. Um, I must say, I overworked myself the past day. <laughs> well, see now you've people. got you've got one in the bank now for. It's true. I'm off the hook next time. time. Yes, I've got some writing to do ahead of me, but at least the research part is done for me. Yes. So, which is always the most time-consuming part. Mm-hmm, but, for sure. Oh, but we love to do it. We do this all for you listeners. We we work hard, not just to amuse ourselves, but to <laughs> tell interesting and pertinent stories. Yes, um, and thank until you. that next pertinent story in our lives and yours comes through. Bye. Bye.